part nine. It's the final countdown of sorts. Uh, this will be part nine of our journey through the book of Esther. It is it will be the final message given. We will wrap up the series, hopefully put a nice little bow on it. We begin our story in chapter 9, verse 1. The day has come, finally has arrived, the purge. The evil Haman came up with a plan in chapter 3, convinced the king to sign off on this edict, authorizing the extermination of an entire people group, the Jewish people. Esther and Mordecai have gone to bat. Chapter 8, the king, because he can't revoke the edict of chapter 3, writes a new edict that will allow the Jews to exercise self-defensive measures on this day, the day of the purge. And it's, it's here now in chapter 9. It says this, chapter 9-1, Now in the twelfth month, the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commanded edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The day's finally there, but the author tells us the reverse happened. The reverse occurred. Their enemies sought to gain mastery over them. The opposite happened. One commentator, McConville, notes that in a world which God appears to be absent, He is nonetheless present. And you think about that for a moment, because if you've been with us through the book of Esther, you know that God isn't mentioned at all. It's one of those unique aspects of this particular book. God's not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. And yet in a world in which God appears to be absent, He's nonetheless present. And you say, well, why does that matter? Why should I care about that? Because it matters that if that isn't the case, if God isn't actually present, despite not being mentioned, if that's not the case, they don't stand a chance. They, they stand zero chance of survival. It matters because if that isn't the case, we don't stand a chance. As Christians today in 2020, living apart from our permanent home in heaven, you stand zero chance. You say, of what? And I would say, yes. Of everything. You don't stand a chance if that's not the case. Yeah, God's not mentioned in the book. Oh, but He is very present underneath the words on these pages. So we come to verse 2. It says, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. No one could stand against them, the author tells us. And that doesn't mean that their enemies failed to attack them. We, we know that they were trying in verse 1 of chapter 9 to attack them. But rather that their enemies, they couldn't prevail against them. For fear had fallen on the peoples. And I think, well, how does that happen? Fear falls on the peoples? How does that happen? Why does that happen? In the Bible, 
many times God caused fear to fall on the enemies of his people, to sovereignly change the outcome and circumstances in his direction. It's been the story of Esther, right? He, he changes the circumstances. He changes the balance of power from Haman to Mordecai. He changes the direction of the king's heart from issuing the edict that would eradicate the Jews in chapter 3 to issuing a new edict that would allow the Jews to exercise self-defense in chapter 8. He does this, right? How does this fear fall on the people? We've seen lots of examples in the Bible in which this happens. God at work sovereignly changing the outcome, sovereignly changing the circumstances, and as I even mentioned, changing the direction of the king's heart that his, that his people might be given the ability to defend themselves. And I think might, might be given the ability to defend themselves. They, they might, as, as if it's like a statistic or a possibility. They, they might be given? No, no, I think better spoken is they would be given the ability to defend themselves. Like, this isn't a matter of uncertainty. Like, we know the outcome is certain, and that's just as true today for us Christians. We elect exiles, because we know how the story is going to end. Because of our great conqueror who's redeemed us. He's already won the victory. And there's, there's no question here. We, we know how this is going to play out. And he goes on to say this in verse 3. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps, those are just another name for other officials, and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So it's not just a fear of the Jewish people, but they're also afraid of this guy, Mordecai. Mordecai is essentially now the prime minister. He is the number two in all of Persia. It's amazing how rapidly political winds can change. But of course, as Christians, we know why. Because God's at work behind the scenes. God's at work behind the scenes in this story, just as God's at work every moment in your life, Christian. We forget that sometimes. We do. Nice to have reminders like this story here. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man, Mordecai, grew more and more powerful. Man. You know, it hasn't always been smooth sailing for Mordecai. If you've been here through the previous eight sermons, you know that's the case, right? It's been a little bit uh, touch and go at times, kind of rough. But wow, how things have changed. It, uh, reading verse 3, reading verse 4, it's just like this Count of Monte Cristo type, just full circle swing on the pendulum sort of experiences for him. Makes me think of the story of Joseph, where, I mean, he's going from like zero to hero to, to number two in Egypt. And here, Mordecai, he's going to number two in all of Persia. Hasn't always been smooth sailing, though. It's been, it's been challenging. It's been rough at times. But his crisis is God's providential stepping stone for Mordecai. 
to have greater influence. It is a, a truth that is often repeated in the lives of God's servants. And that's worth thinking on. It's worth remembering, especially how it pertains to our own lives. Those moments in our lives when it's just really hard and really difficult. It's like a moment of crisis. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Those moments are often the birth places in which God radically and powerfully works to bring about the desired change in us and in others. And I just, it's so worth remembering because when we find ourselves in really difficult places in life, you know the kind, the kind that soaked your, your pillowcase this last week with tears, that kind. It really is sometimes, as they say, darkest before the dawn. When, when all seems lost, God is usually much closer than we realize. Yes. Like when all seems lost, and you think about the situation Mordecai is in, right? The king issues the edict in chapter 3. In chapter 4, I mean, the Jewish people are probably thinking, this is it. This is how we're going out. You don't think about how you're going out, right? Until you see something like on the TV, and it's like on, on, my, on my way to service here, suddenly it's like, oh my goodness, Kobe Bryant died. It's like, whoa. And then it just stops, and you're like, wow, I, I, wonder, when, I wonder when death is going to come for me. Because it is. It's going to come for you. The psalmist would say, a wise man prays and asks God to teach him to number his days, right? That he may get a heart of wisdom, right? There's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in preparing and being ready for when death comes. Death will come to us all. And... That was certainly probably the, the frame of reference that not just Mordecai, but all the Jews were probably thinking back in chapter 4. They're probably thinking, this is it, right? Edicts in Persia, they can't be overturned. So this is how it ends. When all seems lost, Christians, God is usually closer than we realize. Chapter 9 here, things are going really well. Back in chapter 4, not so much. And that's why I want us to think on these things because, man, it's really easy to forget where we once were once we arrive at the place that we now are. It really easy, really easy to forget where we once were, like Mordecai, back in chapter 4, once we arrive at the place that we now are. You know, in those, in those valleys, man, we are on our knees. We need King Jesus. We are begging. We are pleading. And then once we make it back to the mountaintop, it's just like, oh, okay, I got this now. Things are going really well, right? His fame is spreading throughout all the provinces. The man Mordecai is growing more and more powerful. Hasn't always been smooth sailing. It has been difficult at times for Mordecai for the Jewish people during this time. You know, I've never... I've never heard anyone say that the really deep lessons of my life have come through times of ease and comfort. I don't know about you. I, I haven't heard a lot of Christians say, oh yeah, the, the times where I had the most spiritual growth is when, man, that, that, man, that last semester, there was, I mean, I was, like, I was walking on sunshine. Like, everything was going my way. But I have heard 
I have heard a lot of Christians say every significant advance I've ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with Him has come through difficult times and suffering. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from a man named Samuel Rutherford, 17th century Scottish pastor. And he would say that when we were cast, when we are cast into the cellars of affliction, he remembered that the great king always kept his wine there. There's a, there's a picture for you. That in those darkest moments, God came through, God sustained. Spurgeon, he, he said it another way. Those who dive deep into the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. So, yeah, things are a lot better for Mordecai here in chapter 9 than they were in chapter 4. But it's worth remembering where he's come from. Um, That's worth remembering, especially as it pertains to our own lives. It's good to think on these things. It really, really is good because it's just so easy to forget where we once were once we arrived at the place that we now are. He continues in verse 5. It says this, The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they please to those who hated them. Now, verse 5 is the climax of the narrative. The primary theme of the story of Esther is the survival of the Jewish people, the survival of the people of God. And so we've got a people in a foreign land like the Jews in Persia, and they couldn't have never survived without the grace and power of God. And and that's not just demonstrated in Mordecai's life, but throughout all the Jewish people's lives. And yet God is not ever mentioned at all in this story. And some of you, you, you know the feeling. You're like, man, there is no way. Some of you just saying this even last night. There's, there's no way, like, I'm going to pass this class. There's no way I'm ever going to get that job. There's no way that, fill in the blank, right? However it pertains to you. And then in that time when you need it most, God comes through, sometimes in the 11th hour. And as Christians living as elect exiles, sometimes we may worry, we may wonder, how are we going to survive, right? After one regime change to another, how are we going to make it if this happens or that happens or this doesn't happen? And the answer is the the same way that our spiritual ancestors made it. That's the answer. The answer is in the story of Esther in the deliverance, in the preservation of the Jewish people under threat of death. And how does that happen, God? How how are we going to make it through the next week, through the next month? The way we've made it through all the previous weeks and months, both the good ones and the hard ones, through God. That's how the deliverance of the Jews isn't just a theme through the book of Esther. The deliverance of the people of God is the theme throughout the entire Bible. And it's really no different than the very incidents in your own life that I imagine you doubt at times whether this will happen, whether you're going to make it, whether God is going to come through in this situation because maybe you've calculated things out, you've crunched the numbers, 
And quite frankly, it just doesn't add up. You don't know where or how you will be saved. And I'm going back to the faith of Mordecai in chapter 4 when he first approaches Esther. Esther, the king issued this edict. You've got to go to the king on behalf of the people. For Esther, you need to understand that perhaps the entire reason that you're in the position you're in right now, that you are queen of all of Persia, is for such a time as this. And if you keep silent, Esther, he tells her, if you, if you decide you, you don't want to go to bat for the people, understand that relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Do you get that? Do you see Mordecai's mentality, his thoughts about God back in chapter 4 when he says it? You keep silent. You decide you don't want to say anything. That's okay. Because relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. In other words, God is not limited or hindered by your potential unwillingness to comply, Esther, because he can answer our prayers a million different ways. That's what this story illustrates in the deliverance of the people of God. That's what verse 5 here is all about. It is the climax of their deliverance of their answered prayers. The Jews struck all their enemies. See in verse 5? All their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Furthermore, that expression, they did as they pleased, it shouldn't be understood as a reference to cruelty, but rather a reversal of Haman's plans. How did Haman's plans ever get reversed when in Persia you can't change a law once it's been issued, right? That's the story, right? He's not mentioned. We know how, right? God. God's the answer for this. They did as they pleased. And that continues the theme of chapter 9, verse 1. Remember in chapter 9, verse 1? What happened? Their enemies who hated them sought to gain mastery over them. What happened? The reverse occurred. So chapter 9, verse 1 says, the reverse occurred, right? Bad guys are coming for you. They're ready to kick your butt. Opposite happened, right? You kick their butt. And then here in chapter 9, verse 5, it says, they did as they pleased, which bears more significance when you understand that back in chapter 3, verse 11, when Haman first went to the king, the king said this, go and do to the people as you please. And now the reverse is happening again. You see that? Chapter 3, verse 11, the king says, go ahead. You want to annihilate all these people? Do whatever, you, do whatever you please to do with them. And what does it say in chapter 9, verse 5? And they did as they please to those who hated them. <sighs> That's pretty cool. How's that happen, God? There is no other way. This could happen. This way, apart from God. The royal authorization of chapter 3 has been overturned. You can't overturn Persian law. Okay, we got a higher authority we're working with right here. Christian, that, that should really encourage you. In those moments when you're like, there's no way, Joe, I've ran all the numbers, I've crunched this, it's not working out. That's okay. Right? Because we're, we're, uh, we're working with a higher authority. You say, Joe, I've heard you say before, man, you love, you love numbers because they don't lie. That's okay. Right? Even if all the numbers don't add up, like we're working with a higher authority here. And I want you to see that, right? I want, I want this story to be like, just cement the bedrock of your faith for you. I don't know, maybe some of you, your faith is just kind of like wavering the last few weeks, and, and you need to hear this. Well, I'm thankful for this story.
and others like it for this very reason. Verse 6, it says, In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, these are all of Haman's sons, with really hard to pronounce names. And they also killed Parshandatha and Delphin and Espatha and Poratha and Adelia and Aretha and Parmashtha and Arise and Aride and Vaestha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. They did not lay hands on the plunder. This is a really important statement here. It's going to be repeated, not just here. We've got it in verse 10. It's going to show up in verse 15 and 16 as well. Three different times in the course of six verses. Once it's repeated in verse 16, then I'll comment on it. But just kind of hold it there for a moment. The story continues. It says this. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. We have noted before the king at different times throughout the story has seemed kind of indifferent, like, whatever, like, I don't care. Might be the case here as well. So he's essentially, you know, seeing, getting the reports. The early reports are coming in. Here's the body count. 500 bad guys have been killed in Susa. Makes you think, makes you wonder how many have been killed throughout the entire empire. By the way, sweetie, anything else I can do for you, right? That's essentially what just took place. And then we come to verse 13. Really interesting verses right here. Uh, We get a glimpse of Esther that I've never seen before or noticed until this past week. We'll read it. Verse 13, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. She's asking for an extension of the purge. And let the ten sons of Haman, remember, they're already dead, they were already killed, let them be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. It kind of makes Esther come off as uh, hard and cruel for wanting to continue this massacre. So you say, all right, well, then how should we understand this? Like, is she wrong here? Well, one, the author doesn't say that she's wrong. He's seemingly reporting the facts and, and what has taken place. But apparently what's going on and the rationale for her asking for a day two extension of these self-defensive measures on behalf of the Jewish people were that there are still bad guys roaming around Susa, Okay. We killed 500, but we know that there's, there's at least a couple more hundred out there. And I think that's the rationale. There's, there's still bad guys at large who hate us, who want to do us harm, king. So may we have an extension, right, of the purge. So sure, that's fine. And then she says, oh, by the way, Haman's sons who were killed in day one operations, can we hang them, please? They're already dead. Can we hang them? And so in in trying to think about, like, her mindset here, like, I'm thinking from Esther's perspective, I think it would totally make sense for her to think, like, I want all of Haman's sons hanged, just as Haman was hanged, as an example to all the people who ever think if they're going to 
mess with the people of God. This is what's going to happen. If anyone ever has in their mind or their heart such evil and such wickedness, let this be a warning for them to reconsider their ways. Now, I know the text doesn't tell us that, but as I'm trying to think and process maybe what Esther's thinking and the rationale for her request, I think that's entirely plausible. But what these verses show us, I think the glimpse that they give to us is really unique. It's certainly left out of the children's version of the story of Esther, right? I don't remember her asking this request. Can we have another day so that we can continue operations and kill more people? Don't remember that in the, in the children's story. Like, or can we just put these guys' bodies on display? Uh, also left out of the children's story. Um, and so from this, right, as we're like sketching out this, this woman, she's not just this super like attractive young girl who is very respectful and very deferential to Mordecai. We talked about that. Like after she became queen, she was still very respectful, still showing great deference to her older cousin Mordecai who helped raise her. But like here we see another glimpse of her. And quite frankly, guys, like she's, uh, she's like one tough mama. Like, she is tough and scary, like, send shivers down my spine here for a second. Like, when I, when I step back, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, that's, uh, don't mess with her, right? Um, interesting glimpse, one that I've never seen before. Well, we come to verse 15. It says, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, Remember, it's uh, D-Day plus one essentially right here. And they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. That's the second time, now 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. So they reference 75,000. The Septuagint actually only quotes 15,000, but I think the point, regardless of what the actual number was, the author wants to emphasize this was a great victory for the Jewish people, who four chapters ago weren't even sure if they're going to make it. Great victory for them. But we have that, that threefold Repetition of the, then taking in the plunder. How, how do we understand this? Why is this inserted here? And I think the Jews, bottom line, were being very careful not to use material gains as the reason for their action. Perhaps as a reputation basis, right? Lest anyone think that they're just like Haman 2.0 that they have ulterior motives for what they're doing, just as Haman offered to fund the entire purge in chapter 3. And he stood to gain a great deal from the killing of the Jews and seizing all their property. Well, let it not be said of the Jews. They simply wanted to defend their right to live. It's a motives issue. I speak to that and I ask, like, well, what are their motives? Or better yet, what... What are our motives? I mean, Paul would say, whether I eat or whether I drink, I do everything, right? There's the motive for the glory of Christ. What are our motives when we do things? Is it for the glory of Christ? Because it should be. 
you're in the gym, playing hockey, Monday nights at the rink, intramural sports teams, academic excellence, mother of the year, whatever, right? What's your motive? Why am I doing this or why am I doing that? For the glory of God. To make much of Him. Not to make much of you. Not to take the spotlight and put it on you. No, no, no. Christians, we should be all about taking the spotlight and putting it on Christ. I think certainly one of the reasons of the threefold repetitions, I didn't take any of the plunder, is that no one could slander them or say that there were any ulterior motives for their reasoning, right? For these self-defensive operations. That's important. That's important, especially, I'll tell this, like, your Christian reputation depends on this. You should care about your Christian reputation, lest you impugn the name of Christ, lest you make Christ look bad. You don't, you do not want to make Christ look bad. You don't want to do that. There's certainly a motives issue here at play, but certainly I think another plausible explanation that the author may have had in mind for the threefold reference they did not take any of the plunder is to allude to an incident that occurred in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'll just paraphrase the story for you. 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel tells Saul, Saul, here's what God wants, wants you to go out, fight the Amalekites. King Agag, Amalekites, go out, wipe them all out. Don't take Get this. Don't take any of the plunder. Okay. Saul goes out, executes, kills them all. Samuel shows up. Saul, what's going on? I did exactly what you said. Uh, okay. That's cow, right? What's go- you did exactly what? What are all these animals? Well, I mean, here's the thing, Samuel. Like, I, I got rid of, like, most of them, but, like, that's... I mean, that is going to win at the county fair, right? Look at that cow right there. Like, it's just such a great cow. I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of it, right? But understand, it's not for me. I'm going I'm to make a sacrifice to God. So it's, it's really for his. Um, Saul, Samuel says, let me be really clear. God cares a lot more about your obedience than the sacrifices you're going to make. It's pretty word for word. Right on, paraphrase. He cares a lot more about your obedience than, than you making like the sacrifice of the year. He really, really does. And oh, by the way, King Agag, he's still alive. Why is he still alive? Um, well, and then the story just like the scene cuts. Samuel goes over, and the phrase in the ESV is he hacked King Agag to pieces, right? I mean, just like for someone in the role that Samuel's in, imagine, you know, here I am preaching, and then, oh, there's King Agag, and I just go over and I just chop him up to pieces, right? You'd be like, that would be pretty shocking. Okay, like TVMA, like that's a lot to handle. And then when you keep in mind, and we talked about this, in fact, you brought it up, Ben Schmidt brought it up in small group. Haman, the bad guy in the story, he's an Agagite, right? That is, he's a descendant of the Amalekites. The same people in 1 Samuel 15 that they were told to go kill. The Amalekites. King Agag, the Amalekites. Get it? It raises the question. You wonder. 
would they have even been in this situation had in 1 Samuel 15 they obeyed God? That they wholeheartedly obeyed God? You wonder. They didn't pass the test in 1 Samuel 15, right? They took some of the plunder. Not here. Not here. Not this time. We pick up in verse 18. It says, But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday. Makes me think of like the Super Bowl. And as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast Pur. That's the Babylonian name. That is, he cast lots to crush and to destroy them. But when it, that was the plot against the Jewish people, came before the king, he gave orders, that is the king, in writing that his evil plan, Haman's, that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pir. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. This entire section leads up to the institution of the Feast of Purim described here in this section. And they call it that based on the very thing that Haman tried to do in casting the lots and casting the, the, the pure. Like, that's why they name it this. And it is celebrated by the Jews today on the 14th day of Adar, which on our, our calendars at the varies between 
February 25th to March 25th. And the 13th day of Adar, well, that's the fast of Esther. When we come here to the concluding section in chapter 10, it says this, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. That The point of verse 1 is to show the king's continued dominance and prosperity. That's, that's the point of it. And all the acts of his power and his might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Are they not there? Are they not written there? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. We come to this concluding section, really mainly the last verse. And we see all the really nice things about Mordecai, how he is so highly esteemed here. And the reasons mentioned are twofold. Do you see it? The first, first reason is, is he did not think only of himself here, for he sought the welfare of his people. I mean, this really just picks up like where we left off last week with Esther in a very Philippians 2-4 way, right? Think not only of yourselves, right, but, but of others as well. That's Mordecai, right? He's not simply thinking about himself. See, this is why I, I, I love the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean like, like a sermon, right? I talk to people, hey, you go to church? I listen to a sermon. That's not the same thing, right? It's, it's not. It's good. It's just not the same thing, right? Because when you come here, you have the opportunity, and when you gather, especially in those midweek gatherings, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, you have the opportunity to do exactly what Mordecai is doing here. For he sought the welfare of his people. You have the opportunity to have intentional conversations, prayerful conversations in which you get to seek the welfare of other people. That's why I say people are like, well, what's small group all about? These pocket gatherings of the church. It's like Romans twelve fifteen, right? Where we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. That's, that's what it's about. <laughs> The second thing that points out here about him is, and he spoke peace to all his people. He spoke peace. That is, can be translated, he spoke up for peace. He spoke up for what is right. And he did so in a very hostile environment. Dangerous environment. And I say that because today, God desires servants today who, like Mordecai, will speak up when his people are in danger. God desires servants today who will speak up when evil and corruption are rampant in society. God desires today for people to confront sin, to confront injustice, and so it begs the question, Will we? Will we speak up for peace? Will we speak up for what's right, even if it's scary and unpopular? 
to be transparent with you just for a moment. I get scared too. And there are some Sundays when I come in here and I'm nervous. I'm afraid. Because I know, I know what's about to come. Because I got to hear the sermon in advance. But I know what's coming. And I know I might say something that, man, I've told Diana before, man, I, I'm worried. Like, I, I think they might get really mad at me. Right? I'm, I'm nervous that I might say something that you don't like. And, and I, I don't know if you're like me, I, I like to be liked. I don't know if you struggle with that. I, I really like to be liked. And I'm, I'm afraid sometimes, right? I'm going to come up here and I'm going to say something. Man, it's going to upset somebody. It's going to offend somebody. Maybe they're going to stop coming. And I don't mean like heresy. Like Joe came up here and he's like, oh yeah, uh, if you do good things, you can go to heaven as long as you're a good person. Like I don't mean heresy, right? I mean, I'm up here and I'm preaching things that are totally true and right there in the Bible and I'm just going to tick somebody off. And they're going to get mad at me. And they're just going to stop coming. I don't want them to stop coming because I love them. You get it? I, I, I'm sure you understand. I, I, know what, I know what you face. Like, do I confront my friend who is living in sin? Like maybe it's sexual immorality and they're justifying it, right? Just like King Saul when God told him exactly what he wanted. Maybe it's more subtle. Right? The, the friend who claims to be a Christian, but then, as Hebrews 10 says, neglects to gather together. They neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. And they're like, oh, yeah, but I watch church on TV. Dude you're, dude, you're missing out. Like, God, would, God has designed you to be a part of, as a Christian, to be part of a church, right? Where we're like brothers and sisters, not like brothers and sisters. Like, we are brothers and sisters united together through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you see the challenge here. The challenge in the book of Esther is that we, we have to recognize when our time has come to act and to speak. Right? For, for such a time as this. And then when we recognize that, we ought to immediately proceed in doing God's will. It's scary. Yes, trusting in him and his presence and his favor. And so it pegs the question, how will you respond? See, God is present and active now as much as he's ever been. Directing events for his own glory. Directing events for the benefit of his children and his Christians spread across the globe. We must, guys, we've got to hold fast to our faith in the midst of increasing persecution. You think, think it's getting sporty to be a Christian in 2020? Just wait till 2021, folks. Way more unpopular to be a Christian in 2020 than it was in 2015. Yes, yes, we must hold to our hope in Christ. We must be willing to speak peace. Do you see that, right? I'm not making it up. I'm just like, boom, right? That's all... People say, what do you do when you preach? Well, normally what I do when I preach is I read the Bible, and I'm like, ooh, look what he just did. That's all. I just read it, talk about it, read it, talk about it. I'm not here to like, tell you stories or entertain you. It's like, oh, that's what happened. There it is, right? 
What's going on? Oh, he's being commended. Why is he being commended? He sought the welfare of his people. Very selfless focal point here. And he spoke peace to all his people. That is, he spoke up for what was right and good. And he's done that throughout the whole story. He and Esther, under potential threat of death, mind you, right? Not just the potential threat of being defended on social media. Yes, we must be willing to speak peace as Mordecai has, as Esther has done for what's right, speaking against injustice, against sin. Or, or do you not know, Christian, that God has placed you in the very position that you're in, whether you're a student, whether you're a mother, whether you have a job, like whatever. Like God has placed you in this city, whether you're here for six more weeks or 60 more years for such a time as this. Why am I here in Lynchburg right now? Maybe you've been wondering that. Like, oh, what am I doing? If you're a Christian, this is what you're doing, right? If, if you're a Christian, like you, you're like Mordecai, speaking up, pointing people toward the truth of the living God, of the only God. It's scary. Oh, yes, I know. So how will you respond? Will you look to the interests of others? Will you speak up for what is right? Will you? God, make us like Mordecai. Father, make us like Mordecai. Make us like Esther. Give us courage, Lord. Give us boldness, not because of who we are, Jesus, but because of who you are. It's scary sometimes. But Lord, I pray that our confidence would be solidified upon hearing chapter 9 and 10 of this story. Not solidified because, because of ourselves, but solidified because of who you are. And we hear just over and over and over again of how you come through, of how you deliver, of how you rescue your people. And so we make, we take confidence in knowing who you are. I pray that you'd make us more and more like the characters in this story, like Esther and like Mordecai. We pray this in your name, King Jesus.